puzzles me that pastors who've been in the ministry or worship leaders for 10, 20, 30 years don't recite more scripture at key points where it would be so powerful. So the, the worship, the uh, communion table is, is right here. And I usually stand here, or now Kenny does, I did for, for or Dan or whoever's leading. You know, if you're preaching after or before the communion service, this is just a brief moment where you're setting the table trying to gather the people's hearts and minds to the significance of this moment. You don't need a book. You don't need any notes there. Not if you've been in the ministry five years, you don't. I delivered to you what I received from the Lord, how on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. You know that. Well, you don't need to read that. Now, it's not wrong to read the Bible. (laughs) But it says so much to your people. He knows this. He loves this. He lives in this. He's looking at me. He's talking to me. So, a little sermon on Bible memory. For the sake of worship leadership, at the table, in preaching, between songs, prayers of of praise. What, What should you do in prayers of praise? Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there's nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may faint, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's just wired into my brain. Can you remember where it comes from? 73? Worship leaders are full of cries to God. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. If you're going to be a worship leader, you just ooze this. Live there. Live there. Live in the Psalms. The Psalms are the worship book, the prayer book of the church. Um, Thank you, Bob, for being here. I mean, I get to say this, so thank you for leading us. I don't usually at these seminars get to speak into, into worship like that in that's why I'm so fired up. I just, I'm just loving it. Thank you. And uh, just take, you know, if you're a worship leader and Sovereign Grace music or is newer to you, take heed. Take heed. All kinds of things that could be said about what he did and didn't do over there. But thank you. And Bob will be here after lunch for an hour 
for you to ask questions to. So if you can hang out, we don't usually take the seminar beyond lunch, but this time, special treat, not me, just Bob. So I get out of the way. I am talk too much anyway, so get all, all Bob. So come back after lunch. That would be rich. All right, now we want to pick up where we left off last time. We were trying to make the case in point number two on the outline that as you move from the Old Testament to the New, from the temple, from the sacrifices, from the priesthood, from the colors and the tassels and the, oh, just glorious, beautiful, expensive, first a tabernacle and then a building called the temple. As you move over here, my, do things change. And Jesus becomes central as the temple and as the priest and as the sacrifice and all our worship centers on Him and place becomes less important. Ceremony becomes less important. None of them are evil. It's just a shift in, in focus, the intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart is what I argue for. And now we are wrestling with what is that experience. It was generic in the first point, just it's going in. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's not worship. So when the heart is near Him, not far, what's it doing? What's it feeling? What's it experiencing? That's what we're talking about now. And I argued that God is supremely passionate about God. He created the universe to go public with His glory. It's totally about Him. And we should join Him in that so that we sing away, pray away, preach away, welcome away, live away as to call attention to how great He is. Everything we're doing and saying is saying, He's great, He's great, He's awesome, He's satisfying, He's everything to me. That's what life is for. All of life is for that, and there are just a few unique things that can happen when the church gets together to say that kind of thing. And then we pose the question, so isn't that kind of egomania on God's part? Isn't that megalomania? And we, Brad Pitt and Michael Prowse and C.S. Lewis and Eric Reese, all of them stumbling over God's God-centeredness in the Bible. God telling us it's all about me. And Jesus saying, you've got to love me more than you love your dad. And Eric Reese saying, what are you, what are you? And my argument, and we got just a little ways into it with C.S. Lewis's quote, is that God is the one being in the universe for whom the exaltation of Himself is the most loving thing He can do for us because He is the supremely beautiful and satisfying one. I am made the cartoons, remember, I am made not to find my greatest satisfaction in me and how great I am and uh, not even in my sinless self, 
I am made to direct my attention outward toward one who made me, redeemed me, adopted me, and intends to show himself to me forever with increasingly beautiful sights of his infinite satisfying greatness so that I don't think about me. That, that's what those cartoons were saying. Never felt more insignificant, never felt more, what was the other word? Happy? Satisfied? What? Alive. Yeah, alive. That's, that's, the, that's the law written on the heart of Nature Valley advertisers. And you can, you can spot things like that in culture. If you want to be a culturally attuned person that can tie in to your generation, wherever they are, you can do that. If, if you're not sucked into the culture, shaped by the culture, made by the culture, but you've got this massive Godwardness over all culture, you can spot these, these Lichtungen, these, these little sightings, these little openings that come. That was a German word that I learned 40 years ago, about these little, little places in the forest where you're walking through a forest and the trees are so thick you can't see the sky, and suddenly you walk in a little clearing, there's blue. It's like a revelatory moment, like I thought it was night. It's not night, it's day. There are places like that in culture. As you, as you walk around the darkness of the forest of culture, suddenly there's some line in a movie or some thing on TV, and you say, That's all, what was that? And you, you say to your workmate the next day, did you see that? You know what that was? I think that was a God thing. What? And then you're into it. Pointers everywhere where, where you're, you're alive to God's breaking into the darkness of advertising or whatever. Yeah, we could talk a lot about that, couldn't we? Even, even horrible things like Penn State, you can find them there too. Okay, now, so I've all, all I've done to answer the question of the egomania accusation is point to C.S. Lewis. I haven't given any Bible yet. So let's look at a little bit of Bible on this issue because this is just huge. You, if, if you're going to join God in making much of God on Sunday morning, join God in making much of God, you just have to have be settled in your mind, this is good news that God makes much of God. If you, if you have this inkling inside, I don't, I don't like that, you're going to steer away from it. You're going you're to gravitate towards man-centeredness. You're going to love God because God is man-centered. And if you love God because God is man-centered, you're man-centered. And that'll start, that'll flavor your worship. People will taste it. This, this seems to really be about how great man is or how, how wonderful life can be now instead of so here is John 17, Jesus praying. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Father, here I am. Faithful 30 years. The time has arrived. Make me look magnificent. Reveal to the universe how glorious 
I am. That the Son may do the same for you. So it's an intra-Trinitarian conspiracy to magnify each other. Since you have given Him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given Him, you say, oh, isn't that about us? Isn't that about us? He's giving us eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him would have eternal life. It's about our life. He loves us, doesn't He, John? Keep reading. And this is eternal life, that they know you. That's what it is. And the only true God, and they know me. So, yes, it's all about you knowing him. It's all about you loving him. It's all about you enjoying him. If you want it to terminate on you, you want to be God. You won't feel loved until God makes you God. But if you're willing to just be a creature who's made to find his ultimate satisfaction in God being God, you're going to be happy with this kind of eternal life. Eternal life is that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you. That's why I came. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And I think that's just proleptic. I mean, I'm just about to finish it on the cross, in the resurrection. The whole thing will be a display of what you're like and how glorious you are. And now, Father, glorify me. So there and there, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus laid down much of his external divine glory as he took on flesh and made himself able to perish. Now he's saying, all right, I have done it, I have finished it, and I'm coming back and I expect to be enfolded back into the full display of all that I am as the Son of God now. Here's the link. Here is how that connects with you and how it becomes love. Father, this is the end of the prayer now, 24 to 26. That was the beginning. This is the end. Put the end with the beginning together. Father, I desire that they whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my I'm not, I'm not going to be glorified in private. I am going to be glorified, and I am. When, you, when Jesus said, when it says in Hebrews 12, he, he endured the cross, despising the shame, for the joy that was set before him. What do you think that was? That's this, I think. I'm going to be enveloped into the radiance of the Trinity, and I'm bringing them with me. I'm bringing them with me. I died to bring them with me, and they're going to surround us, and they are going to be shining like the sun with that same radiance, because I'm going to glorify them. They're going to see my glory, and this is the joy that sustained me through through the cross where I am, that they may see my glory, that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. These know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known so that the love, now this, this is as great as it gets for us, the love with which you have loved me. Can you say what that is? All right. This is the infinite, and that's not a rhetorical word, that is a factual, mathematical, literal word. The infinite love that the Father has had, now has, always will have for His Son, who is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature, the love that the Father has always had. And what kind of love is that? It is, a, it is an infinite energy that flows from the Father to the Son and the Son back to the Father. These two have in the Spirit loved each other with energy that makes this universe look like a firecracker. That's the love of the Father for the Son. You cannot overstate the energy. You think there's energy in a supernova? You think there's energy in a black hole? You think there's energy in galaxies upon galaxies? They're not. They're like a nut in the pocket of God. God's energy in loving His Son, that's worth talking about, okay? Just get a feel for the magnitude of that simple phrase. The love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them may be in them, meaning the love that the Father has for the Son is now in me. If you read Jonathan Edwards on the Trinity here, I think he's exactly right that that is in me is what the Holy Spirit is in me. The Spirit of the living God is the Spirit, the person who carries the energy of the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father. And that moves into me by the Spirit. And then, frankly, if that were released in this body, I would blow to smithereens in this world. What do you have to have for that to be fully experienced? You need what's called in 1 Corinthians 15, a spiritual body. Man, if you, if you even got a millionth with your physical eyes, these little teeny round silly balls in our head, if you got a millionth of the brightness of the glory of God into this, it would implode, explode, go out of your head, fly apart. You've got to have a new eyeball. It's called a spiritual eyeball. I think it's a physical eyeball. I don't think God hates stuff. He made the world. He made it. He made it. He's not going to throw it away like garbage. Like now we just have angels. You know? Stuff matters to God. It's going to be different. A spiritual body. And, and all that means is it's going to be a body capable of handling this. Forever increasing. And the reason I say forever increasing is because God is infinite and I will always be finite. I don't ever become God. I move towards Godness. The divine life is shared with me. But I don't ever become God, which means I'm always moving towards infinite grasp, infinite understanding, and I never get there. But the meaning of infinite is 
I always am approaching it. Kind of takes your breath away. For eternity, increasing in joy. Children ask the best questions, right? You say that to a child, they'll just go, where did he come from? How? They, they, they're able to be struck with the obvious glories. So, conclusion of those two little passages right there is that for Jesus, to make much of Jesus, for God, to make much of God, for the Trinity, to make much of each other, is not egomania. It is the greatest gift He could give you because He's going to fold you in. He's going to include you in it. So, worship on Sunday morning is helping people get in that. Come on in. Come on in. Taste more of what the Father feels for the Son. Taste more of what the Son feels for the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let the Father's Spirit get in you. Feel that way about Jesus. Feel that way about Jesus. He's super pleasing. Infinitely pleasing. My favorite dead theologian outside the Bible is Jonathan Edwards, and this paragraph is the most important paragraph I've ever read in Edwards and almost anywhere else outside the Bible. And the implications this has for preaching and the implications this has for worshiping seem to me to be never-ending. So, let me read it. God glorifies Himself. Hope we're over the hump that that's a beautiful, proper, wise, loving, gracious thing for God to do. God glorifies Himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating Himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing. This is all one hearts rejoicing, delighting, and enjoying. So, the first is understanding. That's one. And the next is all of these, hearts that rejoice, delight, and enjoy the manifestations which He makes of Himself. God is glorified not only in His glory being seen, which corresponds to understanding, but in its being rejoiced in, which corresponds to heart, rejoicing, delighting, enjoying. There's those two things. God's glory is not by, God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, properly understood, but by its being rejoiced in. So, I, I use language like, in worship, two massive things matter. God being understood truly and hearts being awakened and enlivened duly. Duly means due to that. If that's true, what we just said about him, there's a due experience from the heart, an appropriate, a fitting, proper response, and it isn't small. And, and where either of those is missing, worship goes haywire. If truth starts to drift away because the church is becoming liberal, the Bible is becoming negligible, then this becomes emotionalism. If this drifts away, all you got is doctrine, this becomes intellectualism. 
This is, these are the wrestling matches in the, in the church today. Underneath a lot of worship wars is this, this, this tussle between the place of the emotions and the place of the mind. And here, just, Edwards just gets it so together, it seems to me. When those that see it delight in it, or both, God is more glorified than if they only see it. So woe to us if we are doctrinally perfect. And heartless, right? His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. God made the world that he might communicate and the creature receive his glory. That's sentence, that's huge. God made the world that he might communicate and we then receive his glory. That's why the world was made. One of the most important things you can settle on. And that it might be received, how? Both by the mind, you are a rational creature. And by the heart, you are an emotional creature. He that testifies his idea of God's glory doesn't glorify God so much as he that testifies also of his approbation of it and his delight in it. Now that sentence has become for me life-shaping. Look what it says. He that testifies, let me start here, he that testifies of his idea. So, I, I love theology. I like to read theology. I like to read my Bible. I like to understand sentences, paragraphs, books, arguments. I want to know what God is like. I don't like fuzzy pictures of God. People slip in weird things when pictures are fuzzy of God. I like a God with edges and contours. He is this and he's not that. I don't think God is honored when you say, oh, all I have is mystery. I don't know what he's like. You think, what? This is a big book. This has sentences in it. And you get these people mocking propositional truth. Let's see. What? are you going to put in the place of God is love. God is just. God is holy. I would dive for those propositions. You're going to take them away? You're going to put something nice and squishy in there? Like God is mmm. Or, or, or maybe not even is. Just God. Or maybe less. Ugh. It just comes down to grunting in the end if you wreck propositions. So, all that to say I love it. However, and if we got this right, there wouldn't be so many emergent types and there wouldn't be so many anti-propositional types. If we got this right, if the church was doing this better, young people wouldn't grow up in churches that seemed mindless or emotionless and therefore wouldn't have to make stupid choices. They'd, they'd grow up in a church and they'd say, this, this, this feels whole, this feels human, this feels Godward. Why would I want to go over there and draw pictures on the wall and light candles and sit on rugs and grunt? He that testifies his idea of God's glory does not glorify so much, God so much. So now, he's, okay, it's a person who's got the good ideas, right? Not so much as 
he that testifies also, not either or, also of his approbation of it and his delight in it. So when I say this is life-shaping, I, re- I write book after book, preach sermon after sermon just to say that. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. All I did was take Edwards and make it rhyme. And Edwards got it from the Bible. The end for which God created the world is the most important book I've ever read outside the Bible. The end for which God created the world by Jonathan Edwards. It's short. First half is very philosophical. The next half will blow your socks off because it's all Bible. And that's where it points. Therefore, when God commands us to pursue joy in Him, He is both loving us and honoring Himself. He is seeking worshipers by calling us to seek our joy in Him. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I will say rejoice. Serve the Lord with gladness. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. What about confession? Now, this is a question asked last night, okay? So let me tackle this for a few minutes. This is really important because I know that at this point you might say, so you think really the only worship that honors God is happy worship. Happy, happy, happy. The, the feel in the worship should always be upbeat and always be overflowing with happiness and those who know me, know Bethlehem, know that's absolutely not the case. If anything, I lean in the other direction because of how much sadness there is in the world, how much brokenness there is in my church, and how I want those people to be able to taste and see that God is good in the most horrible experiences of the 9-11 experiences, the cancer experiences, the wayward kid experiences, the most horrible moments. That is exactly where I want this to be real, okay? So, what about, can, can sorrow be worship? Can sorrow be worship? Yes. And all our sorrow should be. You sad about anything right now? I mean, I, I think you are because you're in a world like ours. Everybody should be sad about something all the time. It, it just changes in the news and in your life. Weep with those who weep means you're always weeping. And rejoice with those who rejoice means you're always rejoicing. And so if you don't have a, a theology that can be sorrowful yet always rejoicing and rejoicing and always sorrowful, then you, you're going to read your Bible and stumble over and over again at these always statements. Paul saying, I have unceasing anguish in my heart for my kinsmen according to the flesh because they're cut off from Christ. You want to say, excuse me? Unceasing anguish doesn't seem to fit with rejoice always. And Paul, I think, would look at you and say, "Um, it does. If, If you're not old enough or haven't gotten near enough to God to experience that, then be patient, you will you will find yourself weeping your eyes out at some moment where your heart is deeply satisfied in God. You will. 
you will get the phone call that she has died and you will go to your bed and kneel down and weep for two hours. And inside, you will be saying, thank you. Thank you that I had her this long. Or thank you that she didn't suffer long. Or thank you that she stood strong. Or thank you that you have sustained me. Or thank you, God, I love you. You're my all. What do I have if I don't have you at this moment? You'll know what that means. You will know what these tears do not mean and what they do mean. I don't think this contradicts our thesis that the inward essence of worship is satisfaction in all that God is for us in Christ. The reason is this. If the sorrow we feel is caused by other people's loss of joy in sickness or poverty or calamity or death, then our sorrow is really a beautiful statement of desire that they have the joy in God that would satisfy them and glorify God. This sorrow is an honor to God. This sorrow that they don't have joy is coming from our joy. If you had never tasted joy in God, you wouldn't be sad that they don't have it. Would you? It's, it's your profound, deep experience of tasting God that makes you sad that others don't have it. And the sadness can be profound. Or if our joy in God is threatened by our own suffering or our own prosperity, or our own sin, or our own personality, we should feel sorrow about this, even a measure of anger or hostility toward the sin in us that lets circumstances threaten our joy in God. This sorrow, if it is a godly sorrow, will show that our hearts are grieved at not seeing God more clearly. and loving Him more dearly. The grief shows that deep down we really do want God and want Him to be our treasure and our joy. So this sorrow is a way of saying that God really is our treasure and that joy in God will be the final satisfying state of our souls to His glory. Therefore, it is fitting that corporate worship have seasons of quiet reflection and confession and repentance. Those do not contradict the statement, the essence and heart of worship is a being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. There are paradoxes in in repentance, aren't there? Think about this. If a person is dead to Christ, he's not born again yet, just dead, has has no tastes, like the song we were singing, had no taste for heavenly things. How does that person come to experience genuine repentance for that? I don't think a person can feel genuine repentance for not delighting in God until they've tasted delight in God. The Holy Spirit has to give a touch, a, a living touch. So it's called new birth. One of the first things, I'm tempted to say the first thing, maybe, maybe first and second don't even work here, but immediately there is this tiny, maybe very tiny experience. I, was, I would guess for a child it is very tiny. I think children can be born again. But there's this experience. Sometimes it's explosively immediate and powerful. Sometimes it's tiny, but it is a, t- a, 
an awakening of the taste buds of the soul for things that once were totally boring, disinteresting, namely God, the cross, grace, uh, wisdom, love, power, substitutionary atonement, heaven, justification, sanctification. Suddenly, you, you taste, and, and there's this, what was that? That was really good. And the next thing is, what have I done all my life? Garbage. It's all been garbage. I've been eating garbage all my life. I've been thinking it was sweet. This is sweet. And so repentance, ironically, is the fruit of joy. Sorrow is the fruit of joy. Are you following me? I I don't want to say it too paradoxically. All I mean is, in order to feel genuine repentance for how we have fallen short of treasuring God, you got to treasure Him. You got to taste that He's treasurable. He's awesome. He's just, where have I been? And where has he been? And now there he is offering himself to me, and I am undone. And then, by grace, you're mended, and you begin to grow in your ability to enjoy him. Just pause for, see if I have a question on that. This is, this may be even the hardest things to get our hands around, that, that sorrow, repentance, brokenness, tears in worship services are not contradictory necessarily to saying the essence of worship is being satisfied in all that God is. Because we live in a fallen age and we're always on the way to where we want to be and we grieve that we're not there. Anybody have a question about that? The question is, how do you help people get to that experience when so much of our joy is attached to our circumstances? Car breaks, I get sad. Stock market goes up, I get happy. And that's real, and I would just say that is our life calling, both with our own sanctification and our people. And that's why I just come back to suffering again and again. My answer is, you teach and you try to model what the Bible says. Not only do we rejoice in that, namely the hope of the glory of the grace of God, but we rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience works approvedness, and approvedness works hope, and hope does not put us to shame because the love of God is poured out into our heart by the Holy Spirit. You teach on that. You go to James and teach the same thing. You go to First Peter and teach the same thing. You, you show all over the Bible that the Bible doesn't offer you your best life now. It offers you Christ, who underneath is a rock through all of the sorrows. And over time, this has happened at Bethlehem. Not, not to everybody, because we're all over the map in terms of length of being here and spirituality, but one of those deeply gratifying things to me about being here is the number of suffering people who find this not only a safe place, but a strengthening place. We don't, we don't blow off suffering, and we, we teach on the importance of it. Job is one of our favorite characters. We, 
We, we, we can't believe that he, he fell on his face and say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Ten children were dead. You don't say that lightly in a church of 4,000 people because they are dead and a lot of other sorrows, but you do say it. When we first sang Matt Redmond's song, Blessed, I was standing right here, and you know who was standing right where my briefcase is there? One of our missionaries, he's in Syria, that's why he's not here. <laughs> One of our missionaries, or maybe maybe moved out to Lebanon right now. But anyway, their baby had just died. They had come home from Syria. They stopped in Turkey to try to have a baby and save the baby, lost the baby. Come home to recover. First Sunday, first time we ever sang that song. I've got real strong convictions about how that song should be sung, okay? But I don't want to be too hard on you because <laughs> you've all felt different, done it differently than I think it should be done. But uh, he gives and, you get to that moment, he gives and takes away. He gives and takes. I'm watching Dustin. And that's all I'm thinking. Just a few weeks ago in Turkey, he took their baby. We're saying that in this song. Can you believe we're saying that? We're singing that? And so at that moment, I don't want the drums. I don't want this to be hard driving. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. Do you realize? I'm going to scream at certain places. Do you realize what you're saying here? I don't, I don't think young people by and large do. Worship leaders, you need to help young people. Young people haven't had a lot of experience. They haven't tasted a lot of pain. They, they don't know, they're just happy with this tune. This is unbelievably hard to say what they are saying, what we are singing. We should sing that. So all this is an answer to your question. You sing the truth as well as preach the truth. And I just, want, I just think he gives and takes away should, should have a different feel about it. Hands extended, not, not <laughs> but I just, here's my baby. That's what I feel when I hold my hands out like that. Here's, here's, um, Owen was his name. They named him Owen. This is Owen. Dead. Worship leaders have a huge responsibility to get moments right in the life of a church. It's a miracle when it happens. When people, when I... Don't get depressed at a transmission that goes out. It's going to cost $1,200, and I wanted to give it to the church, and I don't have it anyway. I mean, who does not get discouraged when things like that happen? But we preach to ourselves. We preach to ourselves and get underneath that and put Bible truth. So end of this point. 